I'm John DiLibretto, and you're hearing the Echoes Podcast. We're going to extremes today. On the one hand, we'll hear a feature about the documentary Mantra, Sounds into Silence. I talk to the director, as well as Kirtan singers Deva Pramal and Mitten, White Sun, and Jai Utal. Then we hear about the German iconoclast Karlheinz Stockhausen and a recent performance of his final composition, Klang, the 24 hours of the day. We do it in about 12 minutes. Where else are you going to get that range of musical insight? Only on Echoes. But before we do that, I want to let you know that Echoes is a labor of love, but it's a love that still needs money to keep going. These podcasts are made available completely for free. If you like highly produced, incisive, and compelling interviews with artists and about music that you love, Please help support the process so we can do even more. Go to echoes.org and become a member of the Echoes Sound Circle. We need great music more than ever, so go to echoes.org so we can keep bringing it to you. And now, let's assume the position for Mantra Sounds into Silence. You're hearing Echoes, and I'm John DiLibretto. If you've been to a yoga studio or on a street corner in San Francisco, there's a good chance you've heard the sound of mantra, usually the chant of Hare Krishna. Mantras have moved off the street corner and become concert events that are more like ceremonies and meditation rituals, sometimes with just performers in a concert setting, often as call-and-response rituals. But it's reached its greatest acclaim with musicians bringing contemporary sound to ancient mantras. Artists like Jai Utal, Deva Pramal, Krishna Das, and the winners of last year's New Age Grammy Award, White Sun. Swiss director Georgia Wies has created a film to explore this phenomenon called Mantra, Sounds into Silence. Georgia Wies is a Swiss-born film producer and editor. Her world was in popular music, creating documentaries and promotional films for artists like Paul McCartney, Aretha Franklin, and Tina Turner. Speaking from her studio in Barcelona, she says her world turned when she first heard Mantra. Yeah, I got to know this music uh, when I was uh, accompanying my friend uh, who was suffering cancer. She unfortunately had to eventually pass and throughout those five years of being by her side I, I listened to this music a lot and I realized how profound, uh, you know, how good this music felt me throughout that process and uh, you know, I just realized that that gave me 
kind of a peace within. The sounds she heard weren't the raw and austere performance of most mantras. It was the heavenly voice of German singer Deva Pramal. The song is a Gayatri mantra, and that's also the first thing Deva Pramal claims to have heard in the womb. Yeah, it was the Gayatri mantra, which is basically the first thing I heard when I came came into this world because my father was singing it to my mother while I was being born. Jai Utal is an American musician who was seduced by those early on-the-corner Hare Krishnas in the 1960s. When I first heard Hare Krishna on the street, I was really, really moved and really like, wow, it was a big time wow. I had heard Kirtan and sung Kirtan before I actually heard the Hare Krishnas. But um, that had a passion and a joy that I hadn't heard hadn't experienced before. So I'm thankful to the Hare Krishnas for for opening my ears in that way. Mantra is an Indian tradition that has been traced back more than three millennia. Mantra means, um, man means mind and tries to transcend. So it means that you transcend the chattering of the mind. Followers call it a science and refer to it as technology. There is a, a technology behind uh, reciting mantra. The singer Gurujas from the band White Sun isn't in the documentary, but she echoes the scientific claims. Uh, a mantra is a combination of sounds that are designed to have a specific effect on the human body, brain, and entire system. So a mantra is like a computer code. And the tongue types that code into the mouth, onto the roof of the mouth, and and stimulates certain meridians and certain energy points in the body, stimulates the hypothalamus, stimulates the pineal gland, stimulates the pituitary gland, and, and the whole body starts to have a chemical reaction. And so in this way, the mantras literally change the way that the brain, the neurons of the brain are firing and start to direct them in a more positive place. So that's the technology of it. That's the science of of a mantra. And we see uh, very specific changes that go on in the brain between when a person starts the practice and what their brain looked like a couple of months later. Their brain had actually changed over that period of time. Neuroscientist Dr. Newberg is in the film. He's done studies that indicate that mantra actually changes the brain, including actual brain structure with increased frontal lobes, changes in the autonomic system, and perception. Now, the other area that we're looking at here is an area called the thalamus, which is a very central structure in the brain, not only maybe the seat of our consciousness, but could be in sort of uh, a sort of a seat of our reality. What we found was that when they actually did the practice, this side became more active. So we're seeing a shift in the function of a very essential structure in the brain, the thalamus, that probably changes the way we see reality. 
Proponents of mantra claim many benefits from the chanting. Deva Pramal's partner, Mitten, speaking in the mantra film. Mantras are, you know, they're not descriptive things. They're like, you know, boulders of, of energetic sound. We began to have the experience of sounds affecting us and healing us. Mantra film makes an attempt to separate mantra from religion. We're trying to say with this film that it's, it's you know, many people try to think of it as a religious thing, chanting. And we're just kind of trying to say it's not really about the religious parts of it, it's more about spirituality, which means it's more about finding peace within, finding peace with others and uh, it's not so much about religion. Yet many of the practitioners adopt the religions that mantras come from, be they Sikh, Hindu, or Buddhist. They embrace the clothes, and they often change their names. Many of them were followers of Osho, or Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh, the controversial guru, recently profiled in the documentary, The Wild Wild Country. Others follow other gurus like Swami Bhaktivedanta. White Sun's Guru Jas, dressed in a pure white gown with a white turban, is a follower of the Sikh religion, but also has other practices. Yeah, we we are Sikh. Yeah, this is the 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 technology of what we do. The reason why I'm dressed in white and the reason why I wear this a chuni. Yeah, this is all because I practice Kundalini Yoga. So this is not, this is, you won't go to India and see Sikh stress like this. You just won't. Notably, it's Europeans and especially Americans that have become the popular practitioners of kirtan in the West. And the sound is often not traditional. George Harrison was the first one to turn mantras into pop when he produced the Radha Krishna Temple in 1971. A couple of their songs were hits in Europe. In the 21st century, artists like Jai Utah have gone even further. Georgia Vies. You know, many people here in the West have kind of adapted it to something that sounds and that we're familiar with, that sounds attractive to us. So. It's kind of been adapted to the Western music. Mitten. This is our roots, really. It's Western music. I think pop music or, or whatever you want to call that music. I like the core progressions of of those of that music. So 
So yeah, we just did what came naturally. Georgia Vise thinks it doesn't matter how the music is framed or arranged as long as it's mantra. I think it doesn't really matter if you have a highly produced record or if it's just two people with a harmonium and tabla. Um, I think the effect is, can be very much the same. But the mantra itself is, is just wonderful. You try it. Sit in your room for, for a half an hour tomorrow morning and sing Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. And, You'll feel different. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Mantra Sounds Into Silence is currently in release, showing at theaters and festivals. You can find out more at their website, mantramovie.com. Now that you're all chilled out and at one with the universe, let's hear about a composer who is making music for the post-apocalypse, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen. The weekend of April 14th, I saw a 14-hour performance of his last work, Klong, the 24 hours of the day. So I took the opportunity to dig into my 1982 interview with Stockhausen and get new interviews with Elizabeth Houston of Analog Arts, who produced the performance, and members of Ensemble Musique Fabrique, who performed it. You're hearing Echoes, and I'm John DiLiberto. Karl-Heinz Stockhausen was an iconoclastic composer who loomed over classical music in the mid-20th century. He was a pioneer of electronic music and created massive orchestral works. Minimalist composer Philip Glass once referred to Karl-Heinz Stockhausen's music as neurotic, but the German icon's adherents have included Pink Floyd, The Grateful Dead, Miles Davis, and Frank Zappa. The Beatles have him on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Like John Cage, he's as much a philosopher as a composer, writing music for what he called the post-apocalypse. The man that will be the product of my music in the future will be a completely different man, you can, can, be, can be sure. He, he doesn't look any longer like a man of today. He, he is a different man. He has been transformed by the music. Karl-Heinz Stockhausen died in 2007 at the age of 79, but he left behind a broad array of music, including a final piece called Klong, the 24 hours of the day. Stockhausen has often been concerned with time. In the 60s, he composed the epic titled From the Seven Days, and in the 80s, Light the Seven Days of the Week. As he moved toward the end of his life, he contemplated a day. But for Stockhausen, it was all relative. 
Time was eternal, and everything we experienced was just a small part of it. Here he is from a 1982 interview for the radio series Totally Wired. Every one of us, for a certain time, a certain person, in a certain body, with a certain name. But we are eternal. And this basic feeling of existence is inherent in all important artworks. Because the basic truth in every spirit is that there is nothing like limited time. And to present a work of art with a particular beginning and end, and to reinforce even the impression of beginning and ending, is only an illusion. It is one proposition of an excerpt of time, of the, of the timeless time. Stockhausen ran out of time for Klong, the 24 hours of the day. Of the proposed 24 sections, he only completed 21 before he died. And as the work progressed, the pieces became shorter. The first five are essentially an hour each. Um, and then after that, they, they do get a little bit shorter. Elizabeth Houston. She's a harpist and director of Analog Arts, who are producing a production of Stockhausen's Klong at Fringe Arts in Philadelphia. It's possible that he was aware that he was reaching the end of his life and that um, he needed to cut down on the time that it would take to compose these. Nevertheless, Stockhausen created 14 hours of music that encapsulates his own beliefs in religion, mysticism, and the universe. Christian imagery abounds, including readings of the hymn Vene Creator Spiritus. Klong is an unusual piece in terms of instrumentation, including duets for harp, not an instrument often heard in the Stockhausen canon. But they appear in the first movement, Freude, or Joy. The first section of Klong deals with Christ's ascension. Um, the harp piece deals a lot with Pentecost, and I think that it was it was not an obvious choice, but I think that it was a, a very appropriate choice to have the harp um, since it's an angelic instrument. For performers, Stockhausen is a challenge. Ensemble Musique Fabrique clarinetist Carl Roseman. The thing I find irritating is that there are lots of loops in the piece where we play one little handful of notes, it can be up to what, seven or eight notes, and he wants them repeated lots of times in different dynamics. And he just writes them out once, and then he writes 3x, and then a couple of hours later, 4x, 5x, and then you're looking at them and you're finally thinking, what notes am I playing? I last read these notes two lines ago, and you have to jump up, and then you miss the dynamics, and then you fall off, and then you swear a lot. Time signatures are always odd, usually layered. Harpists have to sing, and organists have to have fractal minds and fingers. Himmelfart for organ, soprano, and tenor is about the ascension. So it's um, it's an incredibly complicated part for organ with just occasional interjections of the soprano and the tenor. The organ part is intended to have 24 different tempi, and as far as I know, the entire time, 
the left and the right hand are at two different tempi. And so it's incredibly complicated to play because you have to, you know, be going 60 beats per minute with your left hand and 100 beats per minute with your right hand. Elizabeth Houston isn't performing in Klang, but as a harpist, she's a fixture of the contemporary classical scene. But look at her website, and you'll see she also plays weddings. So is this something that you would play at a wedding? Uh, Klang? Absolutely. If I, if I could get away with it. <laughs> no, probably not. Stockhausen's music may sound discordant to some ears, like those at a wedding party, but French horn player Christine Chapman of Ensemble Musique Fabrique would disagree. Um, I would have to contradict you extremely. Stockhausen, his, one of the most important things that he ever said to anyone was, it must be beautiful before anything else. Violist Axel Provat, also of Ensemble Musique Fabrique. The music is quite very natural, nearly romantic. I would certainly agree with Axel that Stockhausen is a, a very definite romantic in so many ways, not just in the harmonic language that uh, comes into this piece, but also in his whole conception of composing, his whole conception of himself as an artist, and certainly his whole conception of his ideas as the centre of the universe. If his ideas hadn't been so good, he wouldn't have got away with it. Romanticism may be more a state of mind than a musical expression. Take Heaven's Door, which is one of the most visually staged pieces in the work. It's for a percussionist banging on the door to heaven. Uh, the door was constructed by a luthier uh, to have all of these different panels of wood that have very different tones. And also there's a platform underneath the door that's hollow. So the percussionist is stomping and banging. And it seems to the audience as if he's getting very frustrated trying to get into heaven, trying to find you know, the correct combination or, or maybe the combination is so elaborate that it takes 45 minutes to you know to bang it all out but then eventually the door does open and lets him into heaven you might think that that's the concluding track but then things get really strange as stockhausen moves from biblical themes and metaphors to the book of urantia it's an esoteric tome purported to be written by celestial beings who propose a unified field theory of life, the universe, and everything. There's a hard left turn uh, with the third section, uh, which begins with Cosmic Pulses, a completely electronic piece. Uh, and then after that, it's all electroacoustic pieces that are each named after a planet or a star um, or a universe from Urantia. 
And so that's when Urantia really comes into play in this piece. And these pieces use little chunks of cosmic pulses, but because they're electroacoustic, they also have either a vocal or an instrumental part that is done live. And that brings us back to concepts of mortality and God and the universe. Karl Heinz Stockhausen. Once I die, I'm sure I will discover that a second is an eternity, and that there is a lot going on in a second, and in smaller entities of the second. As we know that the, the quickness of a thought, the time unit of my alpha waves or of my brain are far smaller than the second, but I can't grasp them. My, my brain is not sharp enough to, to amplify this and to enlarge it, to stretch it. Because the, the, I think the miracles are within this microtime. You see, God is zero time. Long, the 24 hours of the day was performed on the weekend of April 7th and 8th at Fringe Arts in Philadelphia. I'm John DiLibretto. Thanks for being with me in this most extreme of Echoes podcast. Next week, I've got a deep interview with the dream pop band Solomon Gray. Their latest album explores loss, grieving, and assisted suicide. You can catch more Echoes podcasts at echoes.org, Apple Music, or in your free Echoes app. See you next week. Mm-hmm.